Welcome to the Wild J Podcast. I'm Rebecca Steele, the Wild J Podcast Editor. And I'm Des Lane, a first year Wild J Editor on the podcast team. Today, we're talking about what happens when the courts issue an order in an immigration case, but the government does not obey it. This ranges from the Trump administration refusing to process new deferred action for childhood arrival applications, even after the Supreme Court blocked the administration's plan to dismantle the program, to individuals who receive a court order preventing their deportation, yet are deported anyways. Executive defiance in the context of immigration law has huge implications for immigrant communities and for the country as a whole, especially given the steady growth of deportations over the last few decades. First, we'll hear from Armando Ganaglia, a former DACA recipient and a member of the legal team that challenged President Trump's administration of DACA to talk about the implications of executive defiance for the immigrant youth who rely on DACA for protection from deportation, work authorization, and other benefits. And then we'll speak with Professor Jennifer Lee Coe about her Yale Law Journal feature on, the, on this issue titled Executive Defiance and the Deportation State. Together, they'll shed light onto what is causing this executive defiance and its implications for those who are most directly impacted by it. These interviews were recorded in fall 2020, and a lot has changed since then, both when it comes to the DACA cases we address and immigration policy and enforcement more generally. We recommend checking for updates if you're interested in these issues. However, the issue of executive defiance in the immigration context remains incredibly important. We do have a little bit of background noise in the first half of this episode, one of the challenges of recording out of the studio because of the pandemic, but we hope you'll bear with us because our guests have some incredibly important insights to share. So today we have Armando Ganaglia. He is a 3L in the YRAC clinic here at YLS, the Worker Immigrant Rights Advocacy Clinic. He studied political science as an undergraduate at Yale, focusing on immigration law and policy before going on to get a Master of Divinity degree at the Yale Divinity School. He received Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, in 2012 and was in the program until this past year. Thank you so much for joining us, Armando. Our episode today is on executive defiance in the context of immigration law, specifically instances where the executive branch fails to comply with judicial directives and prevailing norms. Executive defiance can occur in a variety of contexts, but one particular issue that has rightly gotten a lot of attention recently is the DACA litigation. This example highlights how executive defiance, which might seem like an abstract legal concept, has real-world costs and harms. So Armando, you were on the legal team for Bataille Vidal versus Wolf, the first legal challenge to President Trump's 2017 termination of DACA. Could you give us some background on that initial challenge that culminated in a Supreme Court win? Sure. Uh, so thanks for having me, uh, first off. Um, so the Bataille Vidal litigation actually started before President Trump was even inaugurated uh, back in 2016. Um, at that point, there had been a... So when under President Obama, there were two main efforts to try to do large-scale deferred action programs. There was deferred action for childhood arrivals in 2012. And then in late 2014, there was deferred action um, for parental... Um, Parents of Americans, uh, parental accountability under some phrasings of the policy. And um, that second policy was uh, enjoined by the Southern District of Texas in litigation in Texas v. United States. Um, part of that policy uh, and part of the expansion of deferred action was to give three-year work permits instead of two-year work permits to individuals with DACA. Um, there were individuals who had applied for those three-year permits. They had not received them. 
Uh, and so Bataille Doll started as litigation actually about three-year permits um, rather than about um, any attempt to cancel DACA itself. Uh, President Trump had campaigned and said lots of um, things that suggested that he was going to try to get rid of DACA. He didn't try for the first eight months of his presidency. Uh, and then in September, September 5th, 2017, um, they issued this memorandum um, purporting to get rid of DACA. And, um, and we quickly converted the lawsuit that we already had on- ongoing in the Eastern District of New York um, about the three-year work permits to a uh, lawsuit about uh, the cancellation of DACA. Thank you for sharing that. Could you tell us a little bit about what happened when the that case came in front of the Supreme Court this past summer? Sure. Uh, so the case uh, the case has been full of lots of uh, procedural oddities, uh, and one of those procedural oddities is that the Supreme Court granted certiorari before judgment, uh, and so we had a um, an injunction in that case. It was the first nationwide injunction uh, that kept the DACA program in place. And uh, the government had appealed that um, and appealed it directly to the Supreme Court, which eventually took it on. Uh, the Supreme Court heard the case, and um, its opinion that came out in June relied on the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, specifically the portion of the APA that talks about how government actions cannot be arbitrary or capricious uh, or otherwise contrary to law. Uh, and found that the government's actions in this case, as the docket rescission, were arbitrary and capricious, uh, and that the government had an obligation to think through more than what it had thought through uh, to get to such a widespread and uh, sweeping decision. But even after that win before the Supreme Court, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services has refused to process new DACA applications. Would you consider this an instance of executive defiance? Yes. Um, and the reason for that is that uh, we have a clear decision from the Supreme Court. Um, the clear decision was that the doctor decision was not lawful. Um, there was at least a period of time uh, in which USCIS and the government as a whole was required to adjudicate applications. That is one of the uh, that is a portion of our complaint, uh, our amended complaint in the Eastern District of New York on remand. You have the Supreme Court decision in mid-June. Um, after the Supreme Court decision, many people were expecting the government to have to immediately accept new applications. Um, we anticipated that the government might argue that because the mandate of the Supreme Court did not issue or wouldn't issue for another few weeks, that, the gov- that would buy the government some more time uh, to think through how to try to get rid of DACA again, uh, which is what the government, in fact, argued. Um, when the time came, uh, the Supreme Court actually, a couple weeks later, um, denied certiorari in a Fourth Circuit case, um, Casa de Maryland v. Trump. And in that case, uh, in the Casa de Maryland case, as soon as the Supreme Court denied certiorari, the Fourth Circuit's judgment took effect. And the Fourth Circuit's judgment was the exact same as the Supreme Court's uh, in the DACA litigation that arrived at the Supreme Court in Regents uh, of the University of California and uh, was that the government's actions were arbitrary and capricious. So even before the mandate issued in our case, the mandate sending a certified order of judgment, sending the case back down to the Second Circuit to send it back down to the Eastern District, uh, even before any of that happened, uh, the Fourth Circuit's judgment should have taken effect nationwide. Um, The government refused to acknowledge 
um, that the Fourth Circuit's judgment took effect nationwide. Uh, and that's the basis for the contempt action uh, in the District of Maryland that Casa de Maryland brought against the government. So beyond the clear rule of law concerns that you just outlined for us, what are the implications of executive defiance in this context for immigrant youth who are at risk of deportation and immigrant communities more broadly? The way that I think we can think about some of the consequences of this defiance is by thinking about the consequences of deferred action and what it is that deferred action grants people. Deferred action at its core grants protection from deportation. Um, And so any of those benefits um, is suddenly put at risk by executive defiance when it comes to um, DACA. That means that we're looking at people who are likely to be deported uh, because the government has refused to comply. Um, Individuals who might otherwise be able to um, obtain lawful status will be prevented from obtaining lawful status, um, either by traveling abroad and returning with something called advanced parole, um, or by virtue of accumulating unlawful presence in the United States um, and thus being unable to um, go abroad to get a visa and return for a given period of time, usually three or 10 years. Uh, inability to work, inability to obtain driver's licenses in many states. Um, all of these things are at risk. Um, and one of the things that I think is maybe most pernicious about the risk in terms of deportation is the uh, possibility that once an individual is deported, there will be few ways of getting that individual back, um, either because the government isn't able to trace them. Um, we've seen cases like this in terms of minors who've been separated from their parents at the border uh, or guardians. Um, and uh, because there is a growing body of law that the Supreme Court has maybe inadvertently contributed to or intentionally contributed to that uh, states that non-citizens outside the United States lack constitutional rights, um, which in our case, for example, we are pressing a procedural due process claim. Our clients are deported. That may have implications for their ability to return, um, despite the fact that the government was acting contrary to law. Thank you for that, Armando. You kind of touched on this a little bit in your response of on like what happens in instances of executive defiance when you touched on deportation. So given that it happens in so many contexts, we want to kind of hone in more on deportation more generally. So what obstacles do attorneys face when representing immigrants in deportation cases throughout this whole process? There are significant um significant challenges that attorneys face in uh, representing people in removal proceedings, particularly people who are uh, detained. Um, When your client is detained, not only do you have trouble in terms of getting access to your client in order to help build their case, um, you have trouble knowing what's going on inside a given facility. Um, So I'll give you an example from another case um, that, and, uh, and this is all public record, but from another case where we were working with an individual who was detained, um, that individual was nearly deported, despite the government having no paperwork to be able to remove her. Um, she was dragged through the detention center, put on a car, taken to the airport. I wasn't able to get put on the plane because the government lacked the papers it needed. 
returned, not given her medicine or food for a number, good number of hours. Um, and that is only possible when you have an individual who's detained, right? Um, when you're not able to see what's going on in detention facilities, you don't know what the pressures are on individuals to say, you know what, this isn't worth it. I, I don't want to fight this out any longer. It's been six months. It's been a year in detention. Um, I'm just giving up and signing the papers and going home. Um, and we'll make do and try to either come back and risk that perilous journey again um, or just suffer the consequences. Um, so there, there really are unique challenges in the immigration context, um, access to, to your client. And, and there are challenges because of that challenge of access, accessing your client to building a good case for your client. So a lot of building a good case depends on the kind of rapport that an attorney can have with their client. And um, where you don't have that good rapport, um, you might have stories that fall through the cracks, um, things that might make a meaningful difference in someone's case that aren't revealed. Uh, you might have limited time to speak with someone. They have to pay uh, to talk to you on the phone, uh, often uh, exorbitant fees. And um, where that time is limited, for whatever reason, um, you're just not able to compile the evidence that you might need to have a fair hearing in front of an immigration judge um, to be able to get this person the status that they lawfully are entitled to obtain in the United States. Yeah, it seems like you touched on a lot of significant deficiencies in the whole process, especially when someone's wrongfully deported. So in your, I guess, imaginary ideal world, if you were a lawmaker or a judge, how what would the proper remedy look like for a person who is wrongfully deported, deported in defiance of a judicial order? At the very least, I think we're looking at, so practically speaking, we want the person back. Um, right. We, we want to ensure that there's a way of finding individuals who we have deported, uh, and not just be like, Oh, oops, we lost them. We don't really know where they are anymore. Um, which I think is probably one of the worst cop outs that the government can have in these, these cases. Um, so we want the person back. Um, damages might be one way of doing this, uh, because there are certainly damages that people face in those situations. Um, and um, money can't fix everything, right? So this is just this is just an issue that we have in every aspect of the civil law. Um, but I think that would go a ways toward communicating to individuals that what they've gone through matters. What deportation is doing is isn't just this kind of administ- administratively convenient move from one uh, piece of property to another. Um, it's uprooting an individual and an individual individual's life um they're it's uprooting them from their community uh, from their families from the relationships that they've built uh, from their businesses and, and jobs um and so there's no great way of compensating for that but there has to be some way i think of compensating for that um and beyond that you want to ensure accountability um and what specifically that would look like i'm not 100 percent sure but you want to find out why the chain demand broke down uh, because presumably, hopefully, the chain of command did break down. Because if it didn't, what that indicates is defiance from the very top. Um, and that may mean where did, what made it seem okay to remove someone when uh, the courts have enjoined the government from removing someone. Um, I want to point out that part of the importance of that is 
lies in how rare it is for courts to enjoin someone's removal. Um, courts have largely been stripped of jurisdiction by um, ERIRA, by the um, Illegal Immigration Reform and Accountability Act of 1996. Um, so there's Section 8 U.S.C. 1252, which is this giant jurisdiction stripping provision. Um, and so courts are generally prohibited from um, having jurisdiction over cases about the removal of non-citizens. And so when they do, that means that they've gotten through all those hoops and found, look, you can't do this thing. Those, those are rare. These are not like super common things where they just like missed an email. Um, and so you want, you want to, I think, promote accountability of the government by, um, by holding people responsible uh, when they've done these things contrary to law. Well, thank you so much again, Armando, for joining us today. Is there anything else or any last thing you would want listeners to know about the real world costs of executive defiance for immigrant communities? I think the most important thing uh, that we can keep in mind when we think about this is that what we're dealing with are people and people's lives. I like administrative law as much as anyone else. Um, I think that you know it's a fascinating field, and um, and at the same time, there is a temptation to abstract away from the impacts that um, executive defiance can have on people's lives. Um, right. So when we were talking earlier about the consequences of deferred action and the consequences of getting rid of deferred action or ignoring courts rulings on deferred action uh we're talking about real harms to people um and those are those harms are physical there's emotional or psychological they're uh, all over the place um and i say that someone who uh, for a couple of years after finding out that he was undocumented uh didn't have deferred action didn't have daca and um, faced a very uncertain future until DACA came into effect. Um, and because of DACA, I was able to do all the things that I've been able to do in the years since. Um, and I think that's the situation that a lot of our clients are facing, and certainly a large number of people in our class, uh, which is yet to be certified, but in the proposed uh, class for Atari Vidal, tens of thousands of people who um, can either have those same benefits and opportunities or not. Thank you again for joining us, Armando, for sharing all of this context and your expertise on this. And thank you as well for your work on this really important issue. Thanks very much for covering this. Professor Ko is a visiting professor of law at UC Irvine School of Law and a visiting lecturer at the University of Washington School of Law. Her scholarship focuses on the convergence of the immigration enforcement and criminal justice systems, the legal frameworks governing deportation, particularly streamlined procedures that take place outside of the immigration courts, and the federal court's treatment of immigration claims. Professor Coe was the founding director of the Immigration Clinic at Western State College of Law. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Coe. Thank you for having me. So to get started, your piece focuses on executive defiance in the judiciary, instances where the executive branch fails to comply with judicial directives and prevailing norms. Could you share some background on why executive power is so strong in the context of immigration law? Yes. Um, so I think what 
people outside of immigration law might not completely appreciate is that the executive branch really has outstanding power when it comes to um, immigration and particularly the deportation power. So there are a couple of reasons for this, and it has to do with doctrine, the design of the immigration statute, as well as broader institutional design factors. So doctrinally, immigration law has long been shaped by a doctrine known as the plenary power doctrine, which in its purest form says essentially that Congress has plenary, meaning unfettered and unlimited power and discretion to set the immigration rules and can do so in a way where the courts and the constitution are more restrained compared to other areas of law. Now, a corollary to that is if that Congress then sets those rules, it tends to give that power to implement the rules to the executive branch. And so for as a starting point, the executive branch has what I might say is disproportionate power in the immigration context. But in addition, Congress has designed statutory provisions that are meant to explicitly bar judicial review for a number of actions. And so those bars to judicial review, therefore they insulate executive action even more from any kind of scrutiny that the courts would provide. And then finally, when I say institutional design, I'm really using it to encompass history and the broader statute, as well as just the realities of executive enforcement. And so here I need to give credit to professors Adam Cox and Christina Rodriguez, who coined the phrase de facto delegation to describe the executive's role in the immigration context. Sort of brief summary is that the immigration statute essentially makes it very difficult for people to gain lawful admission at the front end of the process. The reality is that through much of U.S. history, the country has allowed people to come inside um, without using the regular process, which has been so restricted. So the current state of affairs is one where, where we have a large number of people who are here in the United States um, without papers and who are subject to a very broad immigration statute that could, in theory, subject 10 to 12 million people to the sanction of deportation. But this is where the president's power comes in, because it really, as a, as a de facto state of affairs, um, is up to the executive, to the president, to set those deportation priorities. And so the president's priorities become tremendously important. And then finally, I'll just note that alongside all those changes, there has been a downward shift in power across the deportation bureaucracy. So if we think within the executive branch of who makes decisions and whose decisions matter, increasingly more and more power really resides in the frontline deportation force, deportation agents who are not lawyers or judges, but who in many ways have the powers of judge, jury, cop, um, all wrapped up together. They actually execute most removal orders that are um, that take place in our system. And then finally, the powers that the frontline deportation force um, exercises are in many ways quasi-criminal and paramilitary. So when we think of immigration agents, oftentimes those images are accompanied by things like handcuffs, weapons, um, and jail bars. 
Thank you, Professor Ko. This is incredibly helpful context. We're interested in learning a little more about what this looks like on the ground. So we're also speaking with Armando Ginaglia, a former DACA recipient who is currently a law student involved in the DACA litigation about executive defiance in that DACA case and the impact it's had on the lives of hundreds of thousands of young immigrants. Could you share another example of executive defiance of the judiciary that illustrates why this is such an important issue? Sure. Um, I mentioned the DACA case in the introduction to my feature, and I talk about a couple of different examples. But I think the starkest example in the paper that I present is that of what I call wrongful deportations. So cases where a non-citizen has actually prevailed and has successfully convinced a federal court to actually issue an order staying their removal. It might be a temporary stay of removal, right, even just for a matter of a couple of days so that a court can assess whether a more permanent stay is in order, or it might be an order that's part of a larger um, preliminary injunction, for example. But nonetheless, when I, when I say wrongful deportations, I mean cases where despite the existence of a federal court order um, telling the agency not to deport a person, the person is deported nonetheless. Anyway, um, you know, the standard for getting a stay like that is not a particularly easy one. And really, the assumption should be that if a person actually succeeds in obtaining relief from a federal court, they should expect to um, rely on that. And so I talk about a number of examples. And just one thing that was really striking to me and looking at some of the more recent instances of wrongful deportations were how oftentimes um, what we might call just granular administrative events led to these deportations taking place. So like misplaced or undelivered emails and, and database errors. Um, so unlike DACA, which feels very much like a top-down directive, like if not from the president, then certainly from agency heads, the power to, for the front line to defy court orders through, again, seemingly um, small bureaucratic decisions that nonetheless carry tremendous human stakes, right? And oftentimes, really, the consequence truly is one's bodily safety or life or death. Um, that defiance power is very much on display in the wrongful deportation context. So it seems like at all levels, both from the top down and these frontline workers, as you just described, this is a really tough issue to tackle. But your piece does speak to a number of potential solutions to this issue, why is it particularly difficult to craft judicial or legislative remedies to executive defiance in the immigration context? Right. So, you know, some of the difficulty is that no one single branch of government can be part of crafting a solution. Um, certainly there are things that courts can do, for example, when they encounter defiance. Um, again, taking wrongful deportations as an example, courts have and can do things like issue contempt. They can issue fines. They can order the return of people. Um, Nonetheless, actually, because of the same jurisdictional bars and plenary power concerns that I've mentioned earlier, there have also been some courts who have essentially taken a very hands-off approach and said, oh, okay, well, we just don't have jurisdiction anymore now that the person has been deported. Um, so there certainly are things that each branch of government can do. 
But, you know, the reality is that, uh, particularly with respect to the courts, um, the judiciary is already operating in a space in which their authority is diminished. Um, expecting one particular branch of government to develop a solution, in particular, expecting the courts to unilaterally monitor executive behavior, um, tends to bring a lot of, um, you know, tends to just have its own limitations in terms of what the courts can actually require of the executive. Um, and there's also a political reality to contend with. Um, there's the reality of political backlash um, and also um, kind of recognizing that all three branches of government are together participating in setting um, out our deportation and detention policy. So those are a couple of reasons um, why it's difficult to just look to one single branch of government. Certainly, though, the executive does also have a critical role to play. Um, again, the president sets um, immigration, particularly deportation priorities, and those priorities, as well as presidential words um, and uh, governance styles, they do make a difference. Again, they're not the only thing that matters. Sort of the nature of the underlying deportation bureaucracy matters as well, and in some ways takes more time to, um, in which to affect change. Thank you for that. You point out a lot of real structural difficulties that everyone sort of experiences when they're thinking about making change. In your piece, you also point out uh, a more deep-rooted solution, the need for political imagination and a re reorientation of the national conversation on the appropriate role of deportation and detention. What kind of reimagining do you have in mind here? Thank you. Um, so I really am pointing towards a fundamental rethinking of almost every aspect of the deportation state as it is currently constituted. So the size, the scale, the scope, um, the nature of those powers. The current deportation, sort of what some people call the deportation machine as it exists today, um, is nowhere stated in the law as a necessity. Um, it's grown over time as a result of choices, choices oftentimes made in Congress and oftentimes made in the executive, but has just grown so much over time. And there are obviously underlying value choices that are embedded in the current size and scope of the deportation state. Um, but sometimes over time, we sort of forget where the, the starting point event was actually, or where it should be. Um, and so ultimately in this piece, what I'm hoping to do is spark a rethinking of some of the value, for example, of deportation and immigration detention, um, and would ultimately hope that we might really ask ourselves as a nation whether the costs outweigh the value and whether the system that we've set up right now is actually um, fundamentally adequately equipped to administer that system um, that's been set up. So, you know, increasingly across the immigrants' rights movement calls for abolition um, and, again, a restructuring and rethinking have been growing, and there are some good reasons um, for legal experts to join and to um, consider those calls. Well, I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Ko. Um, for listeners interested in learning more, we recommend reading Professor Ko's feature titled Executive Defiance and the Deportation State, 
which was just published in the Yale Law Journal. The Yale Law Journal podcast is a production of the Yale Law Journal. Thanks to Ryan McAvoy and the wonderful folks at the Yale Broadcast Studio for making this production possible. If you like the show, don't forget to share it and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts.